Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome again to another episode of the Dig Deep the Mining podcast. And today's guest is Michael Weston, um, who's an advocate and keynote speaker around mental health. I approached Michael um, via LinkedIn after reading a little bit about him um, and he spent 20 years in the mining industry in Western Australia and one day back in 2013 when he was uh, getting ready for work, he was found by by his neighbour unconscious and not being able to breathe. Um, Obviously while Michael survived this, he spent the next two years searching for a diagnosis and answers to why he couldn't function properly as he had prior to this incident. Um, as doctors and specialists began investigating further into Michael's condition, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and acquired brain injury was, uh, was actually diagnosed. Now Michael is, is a speaker providing both the public and workplaces with an insight to his personal uh, lived experience. Why? in highlighting the importance of mental health and well-being. Um, I was really keen to get Michael on uh, to this podcast and share his experience around mental health, um, his thoughts and learnings of what he went through and provide some advice to those listening who are working in highly demanding stressful workplaces like mining um, to understand and recognise the symptoms and what they should do to help them with this. Um, so I want to welcome Michael Weston. Hi, Michael. Hi, Rob. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this podcast. Um, as no we um, before we uh, before we started um, the recording, I, I obviously was talking to you about how how important this subject is and possibly overlooked by many. Um, and your experience and what obviously you're going to tell us, hopefully more people will start being aware of, of this uh, of this subject matter and it seems to be coming more into into people's lives especially with I suppose social media it's becoming more well known so it's good to re- it's really good to hear how what you actually went through what lessons that you have learned and hopefully you can pass that message on to onto others um yeah sure so I want I wondered if you can sort of share your experience, well, actually, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background um, from obviously sure. when you started in the mining industry um, and a little bit about yourself up until that time in 2013. Yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah, my name's Michael Weston. I'm uh, 52 years of age. Um, been married for 26 years. Um, got three adult children, two boys and a girl, and I've got two grandkids. So, Life's pretty good. And busy. Um, yeah. Um, I suppose prior to me having an incident uh, collapsing years ago, um, I suppose I'd call myself as an extrovert, um, bit of a social butterfly, hard worker, and the person that just loved family, friends, and enjoying life. 
Um, here in Australia, we um, we love our barbecues and fishing and just um, love sport as well. So I was into a lot of those type of things. Um, um, as far as career background goes, I, was, um, I suppose I've spent 20 years in the uh, mining industry of uh, commodities like gold, nickel, and 16 of those years was working for a, uh, a worldwide mining company um, uh, in iron ore. So, um, yeah, I worked all over the uh, Pilbara region in Western Australia. Um, for those that all around the world, the listeners, um, Perth in Western Australia, the Pilbara is approximately, you know, ranges around 1,600 odd k's away from um, kilometres away from Perth. Um, worked in places like uh, Parabdu, Yandy, Kajina, Cape Lambert, and my last um, live-in residence position, I suppose, was living in a place called Caratha, which is about 1,600, 1,700 kilometres from Perth. Yeah. Lived in town in residence in Caratha with my uh, family. And I resided to a place called Dampier, which is about 10 minutes away from Caratha in Drive. Um, yeah. what, I, my, what did you work sure. as? Um, my last position was a uh, maintenance superintendent. So there's a, I had, I suppose, about 180 staff. There's anywhere between 30 and 60 contractors um, at any given week. Um um, I was a maintenance superintendent overlooking um, uh, maintenance shuts in our areas. So yeah. I was responsible, accountable for um, uh, the safe and effective execution of the shuts. I looked after conveyors, um, which was about uh, 150 conveyors off the top of my head, yeah. uh, craneage and transport, um, fixed plant workshop and uh, light vehicle workshop so yeah I, it was quite a diverse um portfolio if you like yeah, yeah. and I, I mean as as a recruiter um and especially working in uh, recruiting in the maintenance uh, discipline i know that could be that is stressful um i i suppose sure. companies are always looking for efficiency increasing availability um so i suppose you're always up against it all the time um and yeah things happen happen instantly and you have to obviously get on top of it and, and fix things and get vehicles maybe if it's mobile plant equipment get vehicles back out if the plant if the plant um something goes wrong with the plant you've got to get it up and running again so you could be stressful for a period of time until that plant's up and running or that vehicle's back out on a in in the mine so um, I suppose it's short, spurt, short spurts of stressfulness that you might have encountered. Yeah, it was a, um, it was quite a stressful and demanding job, um, but it was one of those jobs I really loved. You know, it was um, uh, used to pump the adrenaline through the body, and I don't know. I just, I really loved starting at a Gantt chart on a Monday and finishing on a Friday. You know, there was a bit of gold at the end of the tunnel, if you like. Um, my wife used to call me a masochist because I used to go through that every week. But, yeah, it was um, something that I I suppose I 
with my work ethic and everything, I I took the work probably a little bit too far in the way of um, you know really not having a work life balance. And um, for me, there I had very very narrow tunnel vision. It was all work, work, work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just didn't look after myself, unfortunately. Yeah. Before we go and talk about that day in 2013 and yep. what you know now, was there any signs of anything around, I suppose, mental health that now you know what it's all about during that time, whether it was early, early in 2000, was there any time that you thought, if you look look back on yourself, you could probably have done things differently? Um, or was there, any, was there any warning signs that you, anything could have happened or obviously did, did happen? Um, yeah, um, good question. A uh, few, few things there is, um, the first thing would be um, when you're, when I was really busy and I was, it was quite a diverse portfolio, if you like, and geographically it was very much spread everywhere so it um from a time management point of view i was very time limited you know i was running out of um, time every day it just wasn't enough hours in a day so i suppose looking back that um, one thing i do share with people is always ask for help you know i should have put my hand up and said look you know I'm drowning here. I'm, I'm not coping very well. Yeah. Um, I'm human. I've only got two hands. There's only 12 hours in a working day. Um, and, yeah, I, I need some help and perhaps um, some strategies or so, something could have happened in the, the way of um, some of the workload being spread out across the business, you yeah. know. Would, would um, you say you didn't ask for help? And I suppose mining being... Uh, I suppose a macho industry, you mm. probably felt if you asked for help, that would show signs of weakness. Yeah, um, you know, we unfortunately growing up in, or not growing up, but working in the mining industry for for all those years, I suppose it is a, it's not a harden the hell up or anything, but it's, we just get on with business, you know, and Everyone's got their their problems and their um, their things that in work that they have to, I suppose, get over and get through. Um, so yeah, it wasn't something that I was really wanting to put my hand up and say because it was. I suppose it felt a bit like failure. Yeah. The other thing I suppose is. Um, I was actually asking for some help, but one thing I share with people is don't create smoke and mirrors, um, which is what I did. I was working anywhere between 12 to 16 hour days, and then when I'd get home at 8 o'clock at night, so I'd leave home at 5 a.m., get home at anywhere between 7 and 8 o'clock at night, have a quick bit of tea and that laptop would open up again till midnight. So craziness, you know. Um, but I created these smoke and mirrors where I was, um, I suppose, when I was asking for, you know, either whether it be more equipment or more staff, I suppose the, 
the leaders at that time would look at our um, our lean boards. For those that don't know, we had um, you know production boards and everything with all our statistics on and all our data. And a lot of the time we were in the green, so it's very hard for for asking for more things, more help, more staff, more more equipment if you're always in the green because yeah. you, you know why would you want more help because uh everything obviously looks fantastic here but you don't actually see all the hours put in to achieve that you know yeah i mean i suppose looking back you could have probably probably turned that green a little bit into red and done it exactly. and and done it um Spot on, on, on purposely, on purposely, because if you were asking for help, asking for more people, asking for more equipment, and you weren't getting it, to counteract yeah. that, you probably wouldn't have to do as well as you were to get what you wanted. That's right. And that's something I share with people is, you know, red isn't always bad, you know. Yeah. Um, red can be good, but... You know, obviously, you're not um, sabotaging things, the business, just for the sake of getting what you need or, or yeah. what you believe you need. Um, but it is all about actually being transparent and saying, you know, um, obviously, you want to raise these issues before you get into the red because you're there about uh, running the business the best you can but um, and as effective and safely as you can. But... If you're already raising that and we'll say, well, look, you're still you're still going well, we're in the green, everything looks pretty good, just keep monitoring it. If you fall towards in the red zone, then you can actually have some more data behind you to say, look, you know, this is what I was talking about, you know. So yeah. red can be good. It, it really, I suppose, quantifies or, um, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, I understand. Right, want to obviously fast forward to that day in two thousand and thirteen. So, um, appreciate um, if you could share your your experience of that particular day. Obviously, what you can remember, um, and yeah, tell the audience what actually happened. Yeah, so um, in two thousand and thirteen was on the nineteenth of April. I um, pretty much woke up. The morning, as I did for 20 years with my wife, uh, we'd wake up at 4.30 every morning and ready to jump in the vehicle and go to work at 5 o'clock every day, you know, for the past 20 years. But um, this information, I don't actually remember anything of the day uh, this morning on the 19th of April, but my wife conveyed what had happened to me. But she explained to me that we were having a, a uh, cup of tea and a bit of toast before we went to work and when I went to kiss goodbye I um, I shared with her that you know she she could see some changes in me I wasn't speaking much that morning um, and when I went to kiss goodbye she said look you know you, you don't appear to be like you usually are uh, you don't look right do you are you feeling okay and I said, yeah, look, I'm just feeling a bit nervous under my skin. And it was something that my wife, Donna, said, you know, that's not really Michael talk. So she probed a little bit further and asked the question again. She said, look, you know, what do you mean by nervous under the skin? You, do you feel okay? Are you okay to drive to work? And I said, yeah, I just, 
I can't explain it. I feel like something's, you know, shaking underneath my skin, crawling under my skin. But I've got a lot on my mind today and I'll be right. I just need to get to work and get going. So kissed a goodbye and walked out the front door. I don't remember any of this. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, um, not long after I was found by my neighbour, Adam, across the road, um, and the way he describes his person laying face down on the on the driveway, um, not um, not moving, not breathing. Um, yeah, so went into a first aid mode and got me back uh, talking, I suppose. But I was in and out of consciousness, so he um, he raised the alarm with my wife at the front door. An ambulance was called, and I was uh, taken to um, to hospital. One thing I'd, I'd like to share with your listeners, and yep. again, it shows you how my wife and I laugh about it these days, but one thing that we really reflect back on, and it shows you how um, absorbed you are in in the world of work, is my wife said that she was trying to keep me, I suppose, awake while the ambulance was on its way, and she kept saying to me, look, stay with us, stay with us, you know, um, um, this isn't your time to go. And apparently I looked at her and said, I need to get to work. I'm going to be late for a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it, it just really does show you how, um, you know, how much I was drowning in work. I was just thinking, thinking, thinking all the time of work, you know, yeah. even on the... Uh, the last breath, if you like, in front of the house. Not yeah. very good. What, I mean, was there anything leading up to the incident that were any sort of warning signings? Um, and I suppose if you look not too far in the distance, but maybe within a few days or up the lead, week leading up to that, was there anything, if you look back, that mm. could there could have been signs of, obviously, what actually happened and reason why it happened? Be totally honest, I I don't believe I felt anything. You know, if I I suppose if I did feel anything, I'd I'd probably raise the alarm. You know, mm. um, the only thing I felt was that morning where you know I just didn't feel fantastic. I felt a bit comatose, if you like, but everything else I don't remember apart from my wife saying that I feel nervous under my skin. But I suppose the lead up. Um, probably weeks heading up to, I suppose the warning signs are a few things there is apart from working long hours, you know, you've got to be questioning yourself or why do you need to work the long hours. The other thing I found that the longer I worked, the more mistakes I was really making anyway because um, lack of sleep and just not thinking straight, you know, um, not being mindful in the role. And whilst those those mistakes weren't, um, I suppose, catastrophic in the way of uh, decision making, in regards to um, a maintenance shut or things like that, or anyone's safety, um, I was certainly making a lot of little mistakes that you know went from ten hour day to eleven hour day, and you'd make more mistakes, so you're there longer, and you know, so that was a bit of a 
a warning sign and I, I was very conscious that I was doing it. I was conscious that I was tired and that's why I was making those mistakes but just didn't act on it, you know. I thought I was invincible. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was, um, a couple of other things was my mood became, I wouldn't say I was a yes man but I was a very much, I suppose, a can-do person of... Um, just positive mindset, you know, um, yeah. and very rarely blew off the handle or anything. I had a pretty clear head, but I was noticing that I was getting a little bit, I suppose, thin-skinned and things were getting to me a lot easier. So that in itself was a bit of a warning sign for me as well. Yeah. Would you say because you were doing doing so well, if I, if anyone asked you to do something, did you mm. would you say that your tasks increase as well? This is obviously leading up to 2013. Would you say mm. it was hard to say no if someone asked you to do something, add that extra task, um, and obviously yeah. a snowballing effect when one when one person gives you an extra one task and you do it and then given another task and then suddenly you've got an extra ten t over a period of time you've probably got an extra five ten tasks on top of what you already done, which obviously then in, in turn increases your hours that you're going to do each day. And like you said, you come home, turn the laptop on, be working till 12 o'clock. Yeah. Were you given I, given more tasks, people were asking more help and you couldn't say no? Um, I don't think it was saying no. It wasn't being a yes man as such, but in the, the department I was in, we were on scheduled shut, so everything was scheduled and um, always tried to live by um, other people's emergencies were should never become yours, you know. Um, otherwise, you you know, that monkey on your back, that they just your backpack just keeps adding up and adding up and you don't get your own work done. But to put into, um, I suppose, context... Probably about 2011, probably 2012, that's when the GFC, the global, yeah. um, you know, financial situation just went rock bottom. And so the world had changed in business around the world. And uh, we, like every other business, were, I suppose, looking for more for less, if you like. Um, not working the idea was not to work harder or the idea was to work smarter. Yeah. Um, and so I was finding that uh, every meeting our leadership uh, team went to, we were obviously, you know, all under the pump and we were obviously wanting to, you know, be more efficient and by that we were needing to take on more projects and that. But, yeah, I suppose I was a... A bit of a, a yes man, I suppose, as far as when other projects come on or you needed to pick something else up. But to be fair, I think a lot of the other people were the my other colleagues, other superintendents were doing exactly the same thing. So it was very hard to um, to just say no. So unfortunately, I just kept loading up that backpack, you know, and yeah. just trying to prioritise the best you can. Yeah, no, certainly. But it gets to the point, Rob, where you just you're you, you're literally run out of uh, time and oxygen. You know, yeah, you're prioritising your priority list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I want to just go on now, <clears throat> obviously, talk about a little bit about, obviously, from moving on from 2013 and the recovery. And then I've yep. got some other questions I, I do want to sort of cover. So what sure. happened, obviously, following following the incident, the next the next year or two? How, how was that yeah. for you? And, and obviously, they had to do numerous tests and find out why why it actually happened um and obviously discovered well um i got um sent home that day i went to the hospital i had a a lot of tests at uh the uh the hospital up at caratha and you know my brain appeared to be okay it didn't appear that i had a heart attack or anything like that all the bloods came across good um so then there was a i suppose a question around then why did I collapse and, you know, um, they ruled out any seizure or anything. So I suppose after a, quite a lot of exhausting tests and everything, the um, the uh, doctors at the time spoke to my wife and colleagues as as well as my leadership team and, and said, you know, try to get a picture of what my life was leading up to and that and of that day to see you know if they could see any i suppose um answers and it was clear to them that they put it down to um just exhaustion in stress uh full situations of fight or flight so we as humans we we need to live with stress uh we have to have stress in our lives when we release adrenaline to live um, it's the things that get you through a hard day, a hard situation, difficult situation, or even a car accident, if you like, you know. Yeah. Um, but you can only, as a human being, you know, fight so long. There's only so much adrenaline can be released. And um, the way my doctor put it in layman's terms was, you know, he'd been in fight mode for so long, the, the body just, you know, was exhausted and um, so I, I fainted and collapsed. But un- unfortunately, when I collapsed, I also had what they call as uh, hypoxic anoxia. But I wasn't to find out that until 14 months later. Got you. So you probably, after this incident, you probably, yep. did you go back to normal? I going back, yeah, I, go back to work. And then, yeah, yeah if you can t- t- tell us. Yeah, I took three weeks off work, um, even though, again, being a male, uh, being in mining, and it was just a um, the mindset of, well, all the medical reports are coming out all clear. Um, I just need to get back on the, um, the bike and start riding, you know. Yeah. Um, so as much as I didn't want that much time off, I was pretty much instructed to have that time off just to rest. And for three weeks I had off, I was just comatose uh, on the sofa at home, sleeping, not really doing much, uh, didn't go outside the house, rarely, rarely had many conversations with my wife or my kids. Uh, I was just, yeah, exhausted. So Was that but your, I did re- was, I was going to say, was that your choice or is that how you felt? I felt like that. I okay. actually felt uh, tired all the time. And I suppose what I didn't know as well, I was probably going through a bit of, um, I suppose, grief myself about what had happened and going through all the what-ifs, as my wife did, you know. Yeah. What if I didn't wake up that day? What if I didn't 
get found by my neighbour and, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I returned back to work after three weeks um, and I was to learn very quickly before I went through the, the gates of the mine site um, at uh, in Dampier at Parker Point there is um, in, instead of feeling nervous under the skin, I was nervous out the skin. I was having what they call as a panic attack, anxiety attack. Yeah. Um, before I went through those gates, I didn't actually know what it was until later, you know, finding out from the doctor what I was feeling. Um, but I was just sweating profusely before I went through those gates. Um, and what was that down to, do you know? Um, again, the doctors um, said it was because um, I found out I had post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Um, and my body was just not ready to go back into where I had my head in the fire, if you like, you know. Yeah. As mum used to say, if someone told you to put your head in the fire, would you do it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's where all my heartache was, you know. I was working my butt off inside that area. Now I was about to go through those gates. So, you know, my body was really saying, you know, you're not ready. But unfortunately, I... I pushed through and and went through those gates and um, yeah. So would would you say your condition got worse because you went back to work or had the damage already been done? Um, the damage was already done, but I wasn't yeah. to know that. So for fourteen months, I um, within a three month period, actually, I I was doing a I suppose a little side project working with a conveyor health engineer and all I was doing is pretty much uh, walking belts and doing some uh, problem solving and that but I found that I I couldn't actually problem solve I couldn't um, I was finding it hard to understand people's language uh, the context of sentences um, couldn't understand instructions so I was forgetful so I had a lot of things going on, so I was really confused at this stage. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't actually, after three months, I still didn't return to my my original superintendent's role. And I actually self-demoted myself to what they call as a, um, a quality assurance, quality control officer, basically doing exactly what I was doing with the engineers, just walking belts and, yeah. I suppose, looking at preventative maintenance and did, and did would you obviously you felt a lot different? Did people did people see that in you as well? Did they did they think how comes he's different to what he was before? Could they tell? Yeah, it's another good question. It's um, it was a very very bizarre time for everyone, I believe, because um, I was I was sharing with people my frustration at being forgetful, um, getting lost a lot of the time, um, couldn't understand sentences. I was mixing up my words all the time when I spoke. So a lot of things were happening. And even though and people weren't dismiss, dismissive when I, I raised these things, they were more of trying to understand 
what was going on as well. So it was one of those things if I shared with people that, look, you know, there's something wrong with me. I keep forgetting. Or, you know, people would respond in, well, how old are you? Yeah, well, you know, we all forget things, you yeah. know. Or we don't all always understand things. Even things like um, I'd go to meetings and I'd have very thin skin, so I'd, I'd just storm out of the door, which was just unlike me, but I just couldn't process um, the information. I was getting very frustrated and... Um, I suppose people just looked at me and thought, look, you know, he, he just needs a bit of time and space. And But people were asking whether I was okay, but I was, I had this facade of a, a big smile on my face and said, yep, Should I'm okay. Should but be I, right. yeah. But I actually wasn't okay, but um, because unfortunately, I, for 14 months, was uh, having mental breakdowns at work and at home, um, and no one knew about it. I would uh, escape from a, a group environment or even a, if I was walking around with one other person along conveyors or in the plant, I would uh, start to feel very down because my mind wasn't working that the way I wanted it to work um, and so I'd go and disappear somewhere and I'd break down in, and cry Right. Okay. and um, I was like that for 14 months until a turning point in my life where um, I had a major breakdown in front of uh, one of my supervisors um, and it was a turning point because that supervisor obviously could see something was definitely wrong. And uh, he he got me to um, call my wife and said that I wasn't in a great shape and I needed to get to a GP urgently. Yeah. So I yeah. suppose over that time, over those 14 months when you went back to work, mm. all of these things started to slowly build up. Um, yeah. And then it, then it came to sort of a, a head. Where yeah. That, that's obviously what, what happened. Um so yeah, I mean, what 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 would you say you've learned, or what can you tell listeners if they're listening, if they're in a similar situation, and they've gone through what you did over those fourteen months? Um, is there anything that you can share with the listeners if they've got any of those types of symptoms, um, or what other symptoms did you did you have that led up to that that breakdown? Um, definitely symptoms of anxiety and depression, they were the, the, the big ones. Um, but it's really trusting your gut and, and saying to yourself, because only you know how you feel, you know. Um, people can say you'll be fine and we all f get forgetful or, you know, yeah, you did collapse and... I'm sure you'll be right, just take a little bit more time. But I knew in myself, I knew in my gut that things weren't right. Yeah. Um, so you've just got to keep pushing. And I've really got to stress, people were not dismissive within the business. So it just, you know, you don't know what you don't know, you know. Yeah. Um, but what I should have done for the listeners out there is to just go and see a GP and and go and raise these issues because 14 months later, I did go and um, 
see some specialists in Perth, found out that I had an acquired brain injury, found out that I was um, experiencing uh, things like anxiety, depression and PTSD. So, you know, I think back now, walking around a plant for 14 months uh, with an acquired brain injury, um, anxiety, depression, PTSD, all those things, um, no no wonder I was feeling the way I was feeling, you know? Yeah. And would you, obviously, during those 14 months, obviously these things were happening at work, what was mm. your social life like or outside of work? Was that, were, were some of those symptoms happening outside of work as well where you wouldn't need to process that kind of information but obviously probably process other kinds of information um mm. did you start to maybe drink a little bit more to sort of numb some pains or anything like that how was how was your work and um your work and it's, social life it's funny you say that with the drink because um it's whenever I read or meet people uh, that have gone through depression, for example, a lot of people, I don't know the statistics, but a lot of people I speak to did go through a stage where they um, they drank alcohol. But for me, it was the actual complete opposite. Uh, if I drank alcohol, it uh, tastes like poison. Okay. Uh, and, did you used, and did you used to drink a bit before and like it and then suddenly no, I was an alcoholic no. or excessive you know because I was in mining anyway yeah. so uh and being on call and thing it's uh yeah it's just you can't go and um, drink on a mine site for example yeah. so yeah I'd probably a couple of beers over the weekend and that's about it yeah. um maybe have one or two during the week here and there in the hot days because you know we get very hot weather up yeah. in the Pilgrim Australia, but um, but one thing again, looking at the signs, um, that was my one of the biggest signs I could see outside of work was when you go through depression, you become a recluse. Um, so I found that I was very much not wanting to. Um, do anything with the kids anymore, with the sport. I didn't want to go out for dinner anywhere, didn't want to go to barbecues, didn't want to invite anyone round. Um, I really didn't want to see anyone. Yeah. Um, even things like just going up to the, the store to go and get groceries, I just didn't want to leave the house. And when, so you, that, and when you did, I was going to say, and when you did those sort of things, how, mm. did, you, how did you feel? When it's, I suppose it's like if you go, if you're going to the gym, you don't want to go to the gym. But when you get there, yep. you feel good. Did yep. that change once you, obviously, on the certain times that you did, you did want to do these things, and then, but then when you did them, did you feel different or did you still feel depressed? Yeah, I like your analogy there with the um, the gym yeah. because, <laughs> as you say, you you know, your mind always, oh, you know, do I really want to go to the gym? Do I need, once you're there, you go, I'm glad I've done that, yeah. you know. Um, but for me, um, going to an environment where it's socialising and people, um, yeah, it was not good for me. I'd get very worked up um, and probably go get high in anxiety and go deeper in depression once I got back home, so... As well with the brain injury as well, I, I wasn't coping with a lot of noise, a lot of, um, you know, conversations. I couldn't process 
uh, one conversation, let alone many, you know, at the same time. Yeah. But very much opposite to like what you said with the gym. Um, I actually felt worse once I was there, you know. Yeah. So if you can talk us again around, I suppose, some of the tests that that you had to obviously mm-hmm. then give you the diagnosis of what you actually did have. How how was that experience? And if you can share with the audience how that went. In the brain injury side, or yeah. So uh, so after the, the yeah. So when you broke when you broke down at work, mm-hmm. you then obviously I take it that was that was your work over. What happened yep. for the next year or two years after then? Well, after um, finding out that I I had a brain injury, I I actually went deeper into I suppose anxiety and depression. Yeah. Um, and once I'd spoken to the GP and and for the listeners, if you're ever going through any of these feelings of anxiety, depression, your GP is your first point of call. I had this uh, stigma, I suppose, about um, going to a GP and speaking to him about my the way I was feeling um, and the stigma was really washed away straight away because my doctor sat me down. Uh, he listened to me. Uh, he was non-judgmental. Um, and you, you know what? When you hear things like, for example, for listeners around the world, everywhere is different, but in Australia at the moment, um, over 2 million people in Australia have been diagnosed and live with uh, anxiety. Over a million people have been diagnosed and live with depression. Um, eight people a day die from suicide every day. Um, 200 people attempt to take their life every day. Those um, figures so are pretty high, considering there's 20, well, just over 20 million uh, yes. of people in Australia. Those numbers are pretty high. Yeah. So when he shared those things with me and, and said, look, you know, you're not alone um, and you can get help, I can help you with it and you will get better. You can get better. Um, I suppose it was a, a sigh of relief, if you like, just hearing those words and thought, well, you know, well, I'm one of two million people with anxiety that have been diagnosed and one of one million people. Okay, so... Okay, so I'm not, I'm not alone here. You know, yeah. it's a common thing, and as well as he, he explained to me, you know, mental health is, you know, we need to treat it exactly like we would treat, you know, a broken arm, a sprained ankle, anything like that. It, it's your health. You know, yeah, it's not something um, that you've you've just gone crazy and we have all this stigma on. So. Uh, from there, I went to um, see a psychiatrist who um, uh, prescribed some um, prescription drugs. Yeah. And again, I had stigma on that. I'm not a drug taker and I hate taking Panadol. Um, so going to get pills for anxiety and depression um, was really, I had a lot of stigma over that. I just had 
a lot of anxiety was working in my brain at that stage that bit like Hollywood, that's all I was thinking. I was going to be uh, prescribed this medicine, I'd be addicted, next thing I'd be out on the street and, you know, yeah. just all these silly thoughts going through my head. But um, Was it essential the, that you had those, though? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I still, to this day, take this tablet that I take um, and I didn't feel any change. Yeah. But... Another thing to share with your listeners is you need to also just keep communicating with your family and friends, you know, um, because my wife was the first to say, I've seen a significant change in you since you've taken that tablet. Yeah. Um, so, um, and to keep making sure you go back to your GP to make sure that that tablet is working for you. Um, if you're getting side effects and, you know, it might not be the right um, prescription for you to start with, but that's what they're there to help with. And to never drop off those prescription drugs either. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we recently in Australia had a, um, a very well-known footballer, a husband of uh, wife and three kids, um, Unfortunately, he went off his uh, prescription drugs without telling his GP. So, um, yeah, wasn't great. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose a lot of people are in denial if they do have issues around mental health. It, knowing what you know now, is there a reason why people are in denial? Is it because they don't know that they are experiencing these symptoms? Is it a case of no, man up, get over it. Um, what would you say, what would you say, what, why would you say people are in denial? And obviously because you go out and speak to a lot of people, um, mm. you'll probably, you'll probably form your own opinions around that. Hmm. Um, it's funny, you know, um, when I was a leader, I had uh, people, you know, within the large group that I, was accountable for that, you know, um, some had um, mental health challenges and I always supported those people and they got through the other side fine. So I was very supportive. I, I had absolutely zero stigma towards them in their mental health. Um, but for for me, it there was stigma on me. I don't know. I haven't got the answer. I must have just thought I was superhuman and I could just get through this, you know. Um, the only thing I could I could pinpoint is just the education of mental health. You know, I really wasn't educated enough about what anxiety and depression was. Yeah. What were the signs? And whilst we all read about it and heard about it, there wasn't really, you know, we weren't really mindful in that that uh, environment, if you like. Yeah. Do you think mining companies are taking this seriously now? Oh, absolutely. Are absolutely. Okay. Um, in, a, in Australia anyway, Australia, um, not just mining companies, government departments, all businesses, um, it's a very, very proactive space at the moment in a lot of industries, uh, which is fantastic. Um um, educating their staff and not just educating is actually being proactive and supporting them 
um, through those those um, those times of need, and even in the preventative um, environment as well, I suppose is looking outside the box and providing people with um, job shares and um, um, you know flexi hours things things like that that support a person that where they can do work from home still be with kids you know just having a nice work-life balance and still getting the best productivity efficiency out of your staff you know and and happy staff yeah which is healthy yeah certainly and what um obviously knowing what you know now Mm. what things would you have done differently and again, I suppose this can go out to obviously all our listeners that obviously the majority are in the all of them are in the mining industry. Um, is there anything that you would have done differently? Yeah, um, well, certainly, um, definitely asking for help. Number one, you got to put your hand up for help, and that's in two sides of things. A on the um, the work front. Yeah. If you you feel you're overloaded, um, put your hand up, um, jot your workload out, try and list your priorities, and go and see your leader and say, "Listen, you know, um, I really need some help here. I'm I'm drowning." Um, and also, don't create those smoke and mirrors. You know. Yeah. Be be very open. I don't think anyone would put you on a performance management plan if you're you know, you're working your your heart out to the best of your ability. Um, yeah. We are human. We are. We're not robots. If someone, so I was just going to just interrupt yeah. there. If someone yep. went to see their manager and tell them they're drowning in work, and their sure. manager dismisses that, mm. and I suppose you go list all list everything that you're doing and explain to them in properly, they dismiss that. Where mm. else can they turn? Because they could be some people could be facing that they go to the manager tell them they're overworked they're probably being told just to get on with it where will that lead them then because that could that could then lead them onto a slippery slope um and potentially end up similar to yourself what what can they Mm. do is is there any advice that you could you think they that they could do? do do they look at outside help do they go to other managers within the organisation or other people? Um, I think um, I think you've really got to, um, I suppose, pre-plan the meeting first and really get your your facts down on paper. Yeah. Um, one thing I've learnt through many years in business is um, don't go in there with everything in your head and just try and go through the meeting because you can be... I suppose, um, directed into a different uh, pathway and you forget about things and then when you walk out the door, go, oh, I, did, I still didn't cover this and that and the other thing. So writing um, what the agenda of the meeting is, what you want to cover and and some justifications for what's got you here in the first place um, and not just providing your manager with problems, providing solutions as well, you know, um, things that you can provide your manager and say, 
I'm suggesting that we could possibly do this, we could possibly do that. Um, these are the benefits, uh, there's the pros and cons. So that way the manager's got all the facts or your leader has got all their facts in front of them and they can make a, uh, a um, informative decision, you know. Yeah, I suppose um, it's... If uh, it doesn't, sorry, if it doesn't go any, if you're feeling like you're hitting a brick wall, um, every business has, uh, most businesses have mentors, um, EAPs, um, speak to one of your colleagues and try and go through another direction, say, hey, listen, you know, I'm still not getting through, um, help me out here, how can I otherwise justify this? And it's funny you say this because I, I was asked a similar question when I was... Um, giving some coaching a few months ago and, and I they said, well, what happens if it does hit a brick wall and I, I don't get any resolve from that? I suppose like I've been saying is just don't create smoke and mirrors. Providing you've raised those issues, those concerns, you've provided uh, positive um, solutions to the problem, um, and it falls on deaf ears, I suppose. You can you can at least say when things do go in the red um, or things aren't going as well as they should be in, in your area, at least when the manager or that business comes back to you and, and looks at, hey, what's going on in this area, you can bring back that, um, that conversation. Yeah, I suppose it's... I suppose you have to obviously note everything down, um, obviously document everything. Would you advise going to HR as well? And, it, and obviously uh, not, and I don't mean going to HR to say I've, this is what I've gone through. Um, the manager is not listening, for instance, but just making them aware of the situation. Well, I think every situation... Um, is always going to be different. But from my perspective, the business I worked in, um, yeah, d definitely not. Because um, if you've had that conversation with your, your manager and you, you're not getting through, I suppose you just take the... Um, really, you control your own environment. So if you're in that position and you're, you're unable to do more hours and than you possibly can. You you just do the best you can, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that answers that. Yeah, I think, I think, I suppose it's taking control of your own, uh, taking control of yourself and your own, yeah. like I said, your own environment. So if you are overloaded with work and you're getting too many tasks put upon you, obviously you go to your mm. manager, you can tell them, look, I am overloaded work, if they don't listen, then surely the results will then slowly, you then work what you have to do to, yeah. get, to get jobs done. All the other priorities take second, take a back seat. And if they don't get done, they go, don't get done. That will then show that you probably are overworked. Um, yeah. And then it needs to be addressed, obviously dressed again, yeah. dressed separately. So... Yeah. I don't think if everyone, and again, it's probably when I went back to you and asked you, did everyone, when people kept giving you more and more tasks, you kept saying, yes, I'll do that, yes, I'll do that. 
I think sometimes you might have to say, no, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, um, I've got too many tasks. I've only got X amount of hours in a day. I've got these tasks. I can't take on any more work. And it's, it is okay to say no and justify why you're saying no, why you can't take on yes. any extra work. Correct. Yes. So, um, yeah. Um, I want to slowly wrap this up now. Um, it's been really good and in-depth uh, conversation. It's getting, getting a really good understanding of obviously what you, what you have gone through. Since, I suppose, over the last few years, how has, how has what has happened impacted your life um both in the short and long term say over the last couple of years obviously once the di- once you've been diagnosed with with what you've got mm. what is um how how's uh how has this impacted your work l- life in terms of work which obviously you're doing something mm. different now and also your social mm. life yeah it's it's like safety you know um we always talk about safety that um if you have a safety incident you injure yourself there's there's a ripple effect you know it hurts you uh financially um it it might change the way you live life you can't play sport with your kids or can't drive a car or things like that so for me, I worked for um, an, an additional six months with the company I worked for um, on top of that 14 months. So I worked another two years with the business after my incident. Yeah. Um, but I really came to terms with that I did have a brain injury. I was trying to do occupational therapy while I was working and I had anxiety, depression. So it was a, a decision my wife and I made that we'd relocate back to the city in Perth in Western Australia. And uh, I underwent uh, about two years cognitive um, rehabilitation with an occupational therapist, um, did some speech therapy um, and seeing a psychologist amongst uh, other specialists uh, for the brain. So I, my wife uh, also gave up um, her career in mining. She was a, a safety officer in, um, in mining. So she became my uh, a full-time carer um, because I was unable to um, cope with everything life throws at you. Yeah. Um, after two years, I, I came out pretty good. Um, as you can hear, I can speak all normally in that, but yeah. it's even right now it's like um, conveyors inside my head with a lot of mice running in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work just to get one sentence out. So um, I found that very, very difficult to uh, find work again, um, even at uh, one of our large hardware stores here that we have. Um, in Australia, a chain, um, because unfortunately what I live with today is, you know, I can only work so many hours because I get mental fatigue. Yeah. Um, I don't always um, understand instructions. I get sidetracked. I see bright and shine things and um, <laughs> seem to get distracted with other tasks. Yeah. Um, so when you go for a job interview, uh, like I had one time, and 
you know, how do you get a job when you've got a permanent disability being the brain injury? Um, and, you know, you say to a person, well, you know, I can work six hours straight maximum. I don't concentrate very well. Uh, I get um, confused with instructions. I'm very forgetful um, and I can get lost. Well, you're the perfect person we're after, Rob. (laughs) Understand. It was was very difficult for me to get back into the employment. And I didn't want to, um, in Australia, we have uh, what we call Centrelink. Yeah. Um, So the government pays you to, I suppose, living with a disability, for example. But I I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to actually... um, just live and work and not rely on the government. So I thought that I'd, um, what better thing to turn a negative um, occurrence into a positive uh, experience to other people, um, share my learnings and experience with people and hopefully prevent this happening to others. And, And if people are going through anxiety and depression or trying to find that work-life balance, I can provide them with that, um, with what I've learned, you know. Yeah. And well, uh, it's been us, great. I was going to say, tell us about what you're actually doing now and um, mm. and about uh, about your business and how you can help people. Yeah, so I um, travel around um, all, all parts of Australia, all around the states, um, meeting all people in businesses and different businesses, uh, the wider community, um, sharing my lived experience story. Um, But not just sharing that story, is really sharing my learnings um, and providing people with a lot of takeaways that they can actually take away and uh, adapt in their own lives and really to look out for their own mental health and well-being as well as um, others that they work and live with. Um, and I also do coaching and mentoring um, in businesses as well for leaders because um, un- unfortunately we have a, uh, a lot of leaders that um, obviously are developed into those positions, but um, when it comes to mental health and wellbeing and even work-life balance, yeah. trying to find that balance and 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 trying to, um, I suppose, um, have a, a healthy workforce that's um, got no stigma within their team and is looking out for one another is is really important, you know. Yeah. Um, and we share a lot of things like simple, just simple things as a leader to um, one of the great words I love to use is enable um, instead of just educating your staff, enable them to go to work on time, Le- enable them to go home early, enable them to have flexibility in their workplace, you know, with work hours or their place of work because um, it's a bit like safety, you know, the the standard we walk past is the standard we set, much like mental health, you know. I think back in years and years ago, if we saw someone walk, uh, working back late, we'd say, well, you know, don't work too hard and don't work too long. Well, we should be really enabling people to go home and say, listen, is it is it really that important that you have to go past your 12 hours of work? 
or eight hours of work, whatever it be. Um, and if they say yes and these are the reasons, we'll come up with a, a strategy to, you know, enable them and say, look, I don't want to set a standard where everyone's working back. Yeah. If we're having to do that, we either need to look at our our efficiencies or we need to spread some workload out. Yeah. Or if you need to work back, then maybe it's uh, something you need to compromise and say, well, look, you know, if you're going to work an extra hour, I don't want you coming back tomorrow morning until an hour later. Yeah. Because unfortunately, as humans, we always try and do the best for for our employer and um, sometimes our leaders actually just need to say it, you know. Yeah, I understand. And that's resonating yeah. with, with myself as well because I, I do work a lot, a lot of hours and yet, yeah. and yet I don't. I don't see anything wrong with it, but obviously speaking and speaking to yourself, I need to look mm. at I need to look at my own practices to tell the truth, um, yeah, and just just evaluate where I am. What 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 am I doing? Why am I doing a lot more hours than probably I need to do? Um, mm. I mean, I do enjoy my work, but again, I suppose you enjoyed your work, but things still happen to you. So, um, yeah, no, I um. No, I, I need to look at that myself. So uh, really appreciate uh, that advice. I've got a couple more questions, quick questions. Sure. Do you still miss mining? Yes, I do. But okay. I do get to go and um, uh, talk to a lot of mining companies and go onto mine sites. So um, Australia is a very big place, but um, and there's a lot of big mining companies and a lot of staff, but... Um, it's a very small business too, if you like. Uh, yeah. You always know someone somewhere. Um, so yeah, I, I do miss the uh, the working environment, but very much so. Yeah, no, I understand. I, I used to live in Australia myself, so I um yeah I lived there for ten years and was involved in mining for five of those years. So oh, again, I understand understand where you're coming from there. Um, con- concluding. So obviously, mm. we've heard your story um heard your experiences as a conclusion what advice can you give someone that may be having some sort of symptoms they may not even know themselves that they've they may have some mental mental illnesses um because i suppose it's like 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 you mentioned earlier about if you have obviously have a broken arm broken leg you can actually see that whereas Mm. mental mental health it's something you don't necessarily see straight away. Um, and I think sometimes yep. it gradually builds up upon you. Um, mm. I, I imagine other people will see, could see you going through those um, different stages and emotions and the different ways you're, you're um, reacting. So as a conclusion, what can you um, tell our audience if anyone is going through certain symptoms What's what those symptoms could be and what they should do? So if it's yourself and um, symptoms could be a number of things, it's different for a lot of people. Um, it could be um, uh, not sleeping very well. Um, for me, it was the opposite. I used to just go deep sleep and never want to wake up. Um it may be uh, you're needing to 
drink more than often, may even be um, uh, drugs, you know, to, to cope. Yeah. Uh, Thin-skinned, you know, you, you're finding things are really getting to you really easily, you know, um, not eating properly. All those things, not socialising is a really big thing. You know, if you're not having social interaction, you're not feeling comfortable in those environments anymore. Um, that's a, a really big key there. And from the side of um, if you're, you, you're actually looking for the changes in other people, similar things, you really usually you'll know the person you either work with, live with, or you've been best friends for years with. Um, so you, you're going to see changes in them. Um, so it's really important that you actually go and approach that person and start a conversation because – and try to always open – ask uh, an open question – by all means, ask if they're okay, but, you know, just remember if you just leave it at that in the question, it's a it's a closed question. It's a yes or a no, you know. Yeah. Hey, are you okay, Rob? Yes, which is what I used to do all the time and I'd be on my way, but I'd still be having mental breakdowns during the, the day. Yeah. And I really knew that I wasn't well. So got to start that conversation and actually ask questions. So... If, an example would be, um, hey, Rob, are you okay? The reason I ask is uh, you haven't been coming to the barbecues lately or playing sport. Um, um, tell me what's going on, you know. It just starts that conversation. Yeah. If I had been asking that format um, when I was feeling down, um, I certainly would have opened up. Um, but, you know... People ask if I was okay and I'd just say yes. So sometimes you need to, it's a bit like the iceberg. We only see what's on yeah. top of the surface. We don't see the iceberg below and see all the driving behaviours, you know. Um, but make sure it doesn't matter whether it's for yourself. If it's for yourself, get yourself to the um, a GP as soon as possible. Same with someone else if you find that someone's, really looking the, like they're, they're depressed, it doesn't seem right, ask him to go and see a GP. But as a minimum, go and speak to someone, you know. Yeah. Speak to a friend, speak to family, um, just to start that conversation going. Yeah. Yep. And I suppose on that note as well, um, I mean, I suppose it's widely known that men don't necessarily open up. So I suppose mm. if you ask, the first ask for the first time you may get may just get a yes and no answer but i think it's sometimes it's just pursuing that and asking those questions regularly because eventually yep. that person probably would open up um and again i suppose anyone listening that that you know of someone that potentially could have some of these symptoms maybe ask them to listen to this podcast and um, just hear the conversations that obviously we've had. Um, and again, you never know, that may open, that may open them up as well in, into speaking. So, um, yeah. Um, so anyway, really appreciate your time, uh, Michael, for discussing uh, what you went through. Um, and it's good 
you've come out the other side and I take it life is all it, it is good for you now obviously you're working, fantastic yeah working for yourself um and if anyone wants to obviously contact you to um reach out to you to to obviously um ask for some advice um yep. how can they go about doing that um they can just go to my website which is michaelweston.com.au and there's the email address there that they can contact me through yeah and there's a lot of information on mental health and uh as well as blogs and tells my story. Yeah. And are you on any uh, social media platforms? Yes, on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook as well. Okay. And and Twitter. And Twitter. Um, and alternatively, if you want to contact myself, I can pass any uh, questions on to Michael. My email address is rob at mining-international.org. Thank you again for listening. Hope you really Thank enjoyed you, this. Hope, and hope, you, uh, hope the listeners enjoyed this podcast. Um, I think it's a really important issue. It seems to be more and more in the um, public domain around social um, mental health. And hopefully this content that obviously Michael and Michael's experience that is provided um, can resonate with you. Um, and if anyone is obviously having issues, <clears throat> please obviously take note. Obviously feel free to uh, contact Michael or go and see a GP and obviously tell them tell them what is happening. Um, but please open up because um, I think it is important. And um, hopefully people who are listening and are going through those situations, hopefully don't, don't go through what Michael's just been through. Um, so, yeah, really appreciate, really, really appreciate your time, Michael. So until Thanks, next, Rob. So until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.